There you go. I've been itching to do that for months, so thank you. <clears throat> Our message today, Jeremiah's call and confidence. First section, he's got guts, but he's no bullfrog. Our big idea in today's message is this. Whatever problems we face, God is with us to save, and his word strengthens us. I'd like to introduce you to Jeremiah the prophet, and to do that, I draw a parallel with someone in current events that shows similar chutzpah, boldness, audacity, guts. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February this year, many figured the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, would simply bolt and run. After all, the Russian military outweighed the Ukrainian forces many times over. But to everyone's surprise, Zelensky stayed and has shown incredible spunk and nerve in leading his nation through the crisis. It's interesting that Zelensky was born to a Jewish family and grew up speaking Russian in central Ukraine. He obtained a degree in law but pursued a career in comedy, creating a production company which spawned a TV series, Servant of the People in which he actually played the role of the Ukrainian president. Go figure. The series ran from 2015 to 2019 and was immensely popular. Zelensky then actually ran for president and was elected in 2019, positioning himself, according to Wikipedia, as an anti-establishment and anti-corruption figure. No doubt he has weaknesses, but one has to admire his tenacity, his nerve, and inspiring leadership through a time of national crisis. One would hope the title of that earlier TV series, Servant of the People, would become characteristic of all national leaders. Zelensky's courage in facing the Russian juggernaut has been breathtaking. All that to say... Picture the prophet whose book we're studying these next few weeks a similar way. Jeremiah faced severe opposition from religious leaders, the government, the people, and his own relatives over five decades, but he didn't cave in. He had guts. Where did Jeremiah get such strength, courage, and confidence? Who was Jeremiah? Was he a bullfrog? I'm referring to a popular song from 1970 by the band Three Dog Night. I know most of you won't remember that. Some lyrics were, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, was a good friend of mine. And the chorus, if you know it, sing along. Singing joy to the world, all the boys and girls now. Joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea, and joy to you and me. Yeah, yeah, some of you do remember that. <laughs> Verse 2, and if I were the king of the world, tell you what I'd do, I'd throw away the cars and the bars and the war, and uh, make love. Yeah, of course, it's the 70s. We expect love in there somewhere. A bullfrog's resounding rivet may sound like a beckoning to peaceful waters. Perhaps songwriter Hoyt Wayne Axton was inspired somewhat by the biblical prophet Jeremiah. After all, the real Jeremiah was sounding out a warning. He wanted the nation of Judah to avoid impending war and return to a sincere love relationship 
with the Lord God. Jeremiah was born to a priestly family in a village about three miles northeast of Jerusalem in the territory of Benjamin. He ministered over the span of about five decades, as I said, from 627 to 586 B.C. and beyond. Jeremiah wrote the longest book in the Bible, containing more words than any other book. By the volume of his writing and the vulnerability of his writing, we, the reader, can come to feel like we know him personally, perhaps more than any other Old Testament writer. We see Jeremiah get commissioned by God, and the Lord reiterates that at several points in the book. We see Jeremiah enduring conflict. He started off on friendly terms with good King Josiah, remember whom our children's focus today was about. The book of the law was discovered during Josiah's reign, and he repaired the temple and introduced many religious reforms. But it was downhill from there. During King Jehoahaz's reign, there was a distinct shift in the attitude of the court towards Jeremiah. King Jehoiakim showed open hostility toward Jeremiah the prophet. Once when Jeremiah's prophecies were being read to the king in his winter quarters, the king took a knife and kept cutting the scroll off every so often and throwing it in the fire. He treated the prophet's utterances with contempt. Next, under King Jehoiachin, Jeremiah predicted captivity was imminent. King Zedekiah was weak and vacillating, allowing Jeremiah's enemies to mistreat and imprison him. Later, after the Babylonians conquered, Governor Gedaliah, whom Jeremiah was encouraged to advise, was murdered, and the Judeans fleeing to Egypt forced Jeremiah to accompany them. So you can see Jeremiah's life was full of conflict. It was no picnic. The Lord instructed him not to marry and have children because destruction was imminent. One tradition says he died by stoning in Egypt. Another tradition says he was taken captive from Egypt to Babylon around 561 BC, by which time he may have been in his 90s. John MacArthur summarizes Jeremiah's hardships this way. He was threatened, tried for his life, put in stocks, forced to flee from King Jehoiakim, publicly humiliated by a false prophet, and thrown into a pit. In that pit, he sank in the mud up to his knees. There's a job description for you. Sign up today. Because Jeremiah had to face such opposition, that gave rise to several passages we might label as complaints. These are personal appeals from the prophet asking God to deal with those who were causing problems. For instance, 12, 1 to 3. You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them, and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. 
set them apart for the day of slaughter. You can start to glimpse the prophet's humanness and, and feel for his plight. There's even a word coined in English specifically deriving from the prophet's name, Jeremiah. It means a long mournful complaint or lamentation, a list of woes. Jeremiah is rightfully referred to as the weeping prophet. Not only on account of those who are being hostile to him, he ached for those in his country who would be suffering from siege, warfare, famine, and captivity. What would it be like to know calamity is coming on your neighbors, yet not have them heed your warning or pay attention? Jeremiah also wrote down several passages of confession in his book. These are sections of self-examination, honest doubts, questioning. As one commentary puts it, he lays bare before us the intimate dealings of his own soul with God. But to me, one aspect that makes Jeremiah a spiritual giant is his covenant perception. Consider this snapshot of the biblical timeline. It's from my NIV study Bible. Things have been going steadily downhill since the golden era of Kings David and Solomon. In the northern kingdom, a stream of bad kings resulted in its fall in Assyria to Assyria in 722 B.C. Now, in the southern kingdom of Judah, that's on the bottom side, there have been a few good kings, such as Hezekiah and Josiah, but the latter's reforms seem to have been superficial and not stopped the widespread worship of idols. Jeremiah ministers there in the red box at a crucial time just before the exile to Babylon. Has the whole project of God's choosing a people to be a light to the nations been a flop? Once the curses related to disobedience of the Sinai covenant result in the Israelites being evicted from the promised land, what's next? Is it all a colossal failure? Is the whole endeavor just a write-off? To Jeremiah is given the insight that God's grace to people is about to take a fresh turn, a new form, not one tied up with political boundaries and geography. God's going to bring a fresh covenant, a new deal. We see this revolutionary idea in Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Totally rad, dude. What spiritual insight. We see this come true in the New Testament when Jesus' ministry and sacrifice clears the way for people to repent have their sins forgiven, and receive the Holy Spirit who regenerates them and saves them from their old sin patterns. That's 
quite a shift from the old rule-keeping approach of the Pharisees in the Law of Moses. So, that's a, just a brief introduction to Jeremiah and overview of the main themes of the book. Remember, our big idea today is whatever problems we face, God is with us to save and his word strengthens us. We see that play out throughout Jeremiah's life in the face of problems he encounters. Now, to our passage in chapter 1. To begin, there is reference to the problem of sin that's got the nation of Judah ensnared. See Jeremiah 1.16. I'll pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me and burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. Let's break that apart. Their wickedness in forsaking me. Fundamentally, sin is turning away from God, saying no to the Almighty, rejecting Jesus' lordship. Hosea had prophesied in Israel over a century before Jeremiah and portrayed sin as akin to marital infidelity, as when the prophet Hosea's wife left him to engage in immorality. God seeks a relationship with us as creatures. To ignore him is to forsake him. Jeremiah would hear God say in 2.13, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. How are we at risk of forsaking God? Do we seek water for our thirsty souls in the wrong places? Next, in burning incense to other gods. The people of Israel and Judah had taken up worship of gods of other lands and the traditional local Baal gods of Canaan, often based on fertility rites. Frankly, worship that involves shrine prostitutes and the like was just more sexy and appealed to our baser instincts. Yet along with that, in the case of the god Molech, went the practice of infant sacrifice. Immorality with a murderous undercurrent. The last phrase, in worshiping what their hands have made. When we manufacture our own gods, it has the advantage of making us feel like we're in control, we're the center of the universe, and that ejects God from his throne. Now, we may not place idols carved from wood or precious metals in the corner of our living room, but do we get entranced by celebrities on the screen? Are there gadgets or property or vehicles we feel we absolutely must have? What's our entertainment go-to or, or substance we resort to for a fix without which we feel deflated? Are we able to let God be enough for us? Or do we worship idols of our own making? Some instances of the sin problem about a century before Jeremiah, Ahaz had been king in Judah, 2 Kings 16.3. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Hezekiah, a good king, came next, but then Manasseh reigned 55 years, 697 to 642 B.C., with devastating results spiritually. 
2 Kings 21. He, Manasseh, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. So that was a mere couple of decades before Jeremiah's prophetic ministry begins. God has already determined to bring disaster. The clock is ticking. Will the people listen to the prophet's warnings and spare themselves much grief and pain? The peril. We see the Lord telling Jeremiah that judgment is about to happen in a couple of sections of chapter 1. In a general way, verse 10. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Two pairs of verbs there are negative. Uproot, tear down, destroy, overthrow. Only the last pair are positive. Build, plant. After the destruction, there will be a remnant. After the close of the Old Testament, there will be a new. But for now, most of Jeremiah's words are aimed at warning the people of Judah to save themselves from the impending disaster. More peril is predicted in verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to me, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all their sur her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. Now, the term for the visual image God provides here, a boiling pot tilting away from the north, is actually more like a cauldron or a big cast iron tub you might wash clothes in. It's not small. It's not like a little saucepan. It's a huge pot. Disaster is about to be poured out. Northern kingdoms points to Babylon, which conquered Assyria. Then mighty King Nebuchadnezzar was on the march. The significance of setting up their thrones in the entrance of the gates has to do with the fact that the gateway was where local court was held. Governance was carried out. Legal transactions happened. So to have the enemy's throne sitting at the entrance to the gate meant they were now ruling. They were in control. You were their vassal. The positioning. In view of this massive sin problem and the consequent grave peril, God has taken the step of preparing his spokesman, the prophet Jeremiah, and placed him in a position to call the nation back to God. Verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The predicament has not taken God by surprise. Decades ago, the Lord began preparing Jeremiah. From before he was in the womb, God knew or chose him. There's a powerful pro-life statement right there. We are known to God even before birth. The Lord set apart Jeremiah before birth, appointed him as a prophet, not just to Judah, but to the nations, that is, Gentiles. Later on, he does prophesy to surrounding nations. Jeremiah has a divine appointment. God's placed him at that position for this time in history. Verse 10, see today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down and so on. What an exalted position is that? To uproot and overthrow and plant entire nations and kingdoms. Is that somewhere in excess of the power of the General Secretary of the United Nations today? Yep, it doesn't go to Jeremiah's head. He also, verse 18, Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. Fortified city. That's impregnable, indestructible, firm and steadfast, not needing to worry. God is Jeremiah's fortification, his bronze wall. And time would show that Jeremiah would need that as he's later opposed by treacherous kings and false prophets. But at the end, he's the one left standing when the dust settles. The powerful pronouncement. Finally, the essential thing about being a true prophet is speaking for the Lord, perceiving what God has to say and relaying it to the intended audience. God is spirit and his word is Powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Have you hefted a sledgehammer lately? God's saying his word is powerful and weighty like a rock-cracking sledgehammer, worthy of being treated like respect, with respect like a fire ablaze. Several places in chapter 1 we see the word of the Lord emphasized that's, that's central to Jeremiah's calling and ministry. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me, saying. Verse 7, but the Lord said to me. Verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me again. Verse 16, I will pronounce my judgments on my people. This is pictured most concretely after Jeremiah protests in verse 6 that he doesn't know how to speak because he's only a child or youth, maybe around 20 at the beginning of his career. The Lord tells him not to say that, for I am with you and will rescue you, verse 8. And verse 9, And the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. How cool. That must have been really reassuring for Jeremiah to have the Lord actually touch his mouth. God was assuring the prophet he would be speaking truth from the Lord. Despite what culture says. Despite the king's opposition. Despite a crowd of false prophets saying something to the contrary. 
God was with him and would save him, making Jeremiah's words count. That's where the real power lay in God's revealed word. Our experience as Christ followers is similar in that Jesus' words are spirit and life to us. As Simon Peter once protested when many were turning back from following Jesus and Christ asked if his disciples wanted to leave too, uh, Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. As today's big idea puts it, Whatever problems we face, God is with us to save, and his word strengthens us. Nicky Gumbel tells a true story that illustrates the power of God's word to save us from desperate circumstances. Stephen Lungo was the oldest son of a teenage mother from a township in Zimbabwe. She was trapped in a difficult marriage to a man more than 20 years her senior. She dealt with her struggles by drinking heavily. One day when Stephen was three years old, his mother took him, his brother and baby sister, into town. Saying she needed to go to the toilet, Stephen's mother left him, holding his sister in the busy town square while his brother John played on the ground. Two hours later, she had not returned. Their mother had run away, leaving the three children in the reluctant care of an aunt. By the age of 11, Stephen too had run away, preferring to live on the streets. Growing up, Stephen developed a strong bitterness toward God. As a teenager, he was recruited into one of the urban gangs called the Black Shadows, which carried out violence, theft, and destruction on the streets of Zimbabwe. When a traveling evangelist came to town to speak to thousands of people about Jesus in a large tent, Stephen went to firebomb the event. He carried a bag full of bombs. He wanted to attack the event because he wanted to attack God. As Stephen awaited the moment for his attack, Shadrach Maloka, a South African evangelist, took to the stage and announced, but the Holy Spirit had warned him that many in the audience may die soon without Christ. Astonished, the black shadows thought someone had figured out their plan. Stephen Lungo was captivated by the preacher. The speaker's words convinced him about his sins and drew him into an encounter with Jesus. He experienced God's presence. He heard about God's grace and peace. Stephen staggered forward to the stage, grabbed hold of the speaker's feet, and began to sob. That evening, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. The next morning, he presented himself at the local police station and confessed his crimes. The desk sergeant looked at the long charge sheet, listened to his story, and released him. Boarding a bus with a morning commuter, Stephen felt so happy that he was compelled to tell others on the bus the good news. He didn't stop there. Stephen went on to be a full-time evangelist and spent his life telling others about Jesus. At an event a few years ago, an old lady came forward wanting to follow Jesus. That woman turned out to be his own mother who had abandoned him all those years ago. God's presence, protection, and peace are a powerful combination. As Stephen said himself, because I look at myself as a miracle of God's grace, so I believe that the power of Jesus Christ to save sinners still exists. 
If He can change me, He can change anyone. Let's pray. Lord God, we see Your amazing sovereignty at work in the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah and continuing on into our own world today. Help us not be dismayed by opposition to Your message, but to trust Your powerful Word to do its work in Your mysterious and wonderful way. Thank You that You have promised to be with us and to rescue us. Strengthen us by Your Spirit to resist idols and instead say and do according to Your Word. In Jesus' name.